Blog Talk Radio.
Here we go with the lesson. This is John MacArthur, and this one is called The Strength of Gentleness. Thanks for listening to Trippy Radio. We have been looking in the last number of weeks with a few interruptions at the book of Ephesians. So open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a very important book, and I have chosen to go through it, if ever so slowly, because it is so foundational to our Christian life. And we find ourselves now in chapter 4, and we're trying to work our way through verses 1 to 6. This is the third message in chapter 4, 1 to 6, and we will actually get a third of the way through verse 2. But you'll see why. Let me read the text to you. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What clearly strikes you here is the repetition of one in verses 4, 5, and 6. And this is the foundation of our unity. That is a creed, you might say. That is a theological creed that celebrates the oneness of divine reality. Realities related to salvation. And based upon that, we are to be diligent, verse 3 says, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Everything about our salvation, everything about the work of God has a oneness to it, a unity. That should be displayed in the church. The church should manifestly declare its transformation by its unity. John 13, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. John 17, Jesus prayed that they may be one, that the world may know the Father sent the Son. This is clear, unmistakable, and yet elusive in the experience and life of the church in the world. So I want to take a little bit of time as we go through this to help you understand these very important components that lead up to unity that will make our living consistent with the creed. Now, let's think back to how we got to chapter 4 in Ephesians. And let's talk about what all true Christians possess. It started in chapter 1, verse 3. We're all blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. All true Christians possess all spiritual blessings. And Paul delineates these blessings all the way from election to glorification down through verse 14 of chapter 1 and culminates it in verse 15, which expresses our love for the saints. We are all possessors of the same full range 
of blessings in Christ, salvation blessings, and they culminate in love for all the saints. As he goes on in that chapter, Paul continues to talk about what we all possess as true believers. We possess these same spiritual riches. We have been lavished with spiritual riches, with power, with strength, because we are in Christ. He is our life. He is our head, and we are His body. So we are connected to Christ in that unity, that spiritual unity. As you come to chapter 2, Paul says we all started out in the same condition. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were walking according to the course of this world. We were under demonic and satanic influence. But we were all saved by grace through faith, not of works. But we were saved unto good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. So we all started out with all the same spiritual blessings. We all came to engage with these blessings, to receive these blessings. When we were saved by God's divine grace through faith, we have now become Christ's and Christ is ours and we are in Him and He is in us. We are His body. We have been basically created anew for good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And I told you when we went over that passage that just as your glorification was a matter of divine election, so was your sanctification. As we go further into chapter 2, we find, again celebrating our unity, that all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, are one new man. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. We're all one new man. We are all fellow citizens. We are all members of God's household, God's family. We are one building. We are one holy temple for the Lord. We are built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It also says that in chapter 2. So again, all of these things mark out our unity. And then in chapter 3 we read that we are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that collectively and together, verse 19 of chapter 3, we are filled up to all the fullness of God. So that, verse 21, God can be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus the church displays its redemption to all generations forever and ever. So Paul has been going through these three chapters lavishing on us all our spiritual blessings. And the idea is to help us understand we all have the same blessings. We are all one. And that comes out, as I read a moment ago, in verses 4 through 6, where Paul goes back to the foundations of our faith. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. All of this is a plea for unity in the church. But even with all these pleas, there are some necessary attitudes and some necessary spiritual dynamics that have to be at work in a church to fulfill this calling. And that's what we find in this passage before us. First, there is the call to walk worthy. Look at verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he was actually a prisoner when he was writing this, 
The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. The call to walk worthy. The, the word worthy is axios. It means equivalent. In other words, our conduct should match our convictions. Our duty should match our doctrine. Our behavior should match our belief. This is Christian Life 101. If you say you belong to the Lord, you ought to walk the way He walks. This is a message that Paul is giving us right here. He's begging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we are called. This is such a common reality. This is so basic that Paul repeats it frequently in his epistles. Let me give you illustrations. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what does that look like? That you would be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, if you're going to be living out the transformation that God has wrought inside, if you're going to walk in a manner that is worthy you're going to be manifesting yourself in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith. In other words, there will be unity. In Colossians, he says the similar things, different order of words, but exactly the same message. Colossians 1.10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And again, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which means pleasing Him in all respects. In his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. This, again, is the basic perception of the Christian life. Walk consistently with your calling. Basically, let your life match up with what God has done for you and in you. It is a high calling. We have said that. The Scripture calls it a high calling. It is a holy calling. It is a heavenly calling. And by calling, we mean an actual calling where God sovereignly calls us out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of lies into truth. It is the actual saving call where the Lord awakens the dead sinner and gives him life. So if that has happened in your life and you have been called by God, Paul says you have to walk in a way that is consistent with that calling. This is the basic reality of every Christian's life. What you are in position, what you are in possession, you need to be in conduct. Anything other than that is hypocrisy. And anything other than that, of course, cripples the message of saving power because it doesn't demonstrate that transformation to the world if people are hypocritical. And again, we have to come back to the fact that the unity of the church is the church's greatest testimony, and yet it seems to be the hardest thing to see realized. 
So the call to worthy walk, we talked about it. As you come to verse 2, then we look at the characteristics of this worthy life or this worthy walk. And the characteristics might be a little surprising because given that this is such a high calling, heavenly calling, holy calling, what the Lord wants from us is lowliness. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, the goal is always the unity of the Spirit. That is the demonstrated testimony of transforming gospel power. But in order to get to that unity, there have to be some virtues that are manifest and that are established as the priorities in the life of every Christian. And notice in verse 2, and I, I want to take time with this because these are what is essential to being a Christian in the church in such a way that the church becomes one and its testimony is clear. With all humility. The Christians invented this word. Literally, the word means to think lowly of yourself. To think lowly of yourself. That is a far cry from the unconverted world's interest. In fact, no such word existed in classical Greek. Apparently, the Christians coined this word because thinking lowly of yourself was the last thing that Greek culture wanted to advocate as a virtue. We would be the same in our culture today as would be almost every culture throughout human history. You're supposed to think highly of yourself, promote yourself, because, of course, in your fallen condition, pride is the default position of every human sinner. But Christians have come up with this. By virtue of God's design and God's revelation, that we are to be defined by all humility. Not some, but all humility. This is the virtue of the person who is aware of his own unworthiness and weakness. In other words, to walk worthy, you have to recognize you're unworthy. In Acts 20 and verse 19, Paul described what he did as serving the Lord with all humility. So he's passing on what he actually was doing. He is not just the teacher. He is the example. Serving the Lord with all humility. And you would think if you were the Apostle Paul and you had his credentials, uh, you are an apostle, yes. You've had at least four uh, visions of Christ and nobody else had any. Uh, you had a trip to heaven and back. Uh, you have been used more than any human being in history. You have taken the gospel to the Gentiles. You are the apostle to the Gentiles. You have been marked with honor. Just about everybody in the Gentile world was, uh, who was a believer was a believer because of your influence. You would think that for the apostle Paul there would be a tendency to, to, to have a high view of himself. And humanly speaking, you would be right to think that. That's a t tremendous amount of success, a tremendous amount of spiritual success. So the Lord had to mitigate that in his life. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And listen to what Paul says in verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Now, that's about as low as you can go. 
false high calling, apostolic calling, missionary calling, still had to have the perception that he was a slave of Christ and a slave of those to whom he ministered. In fact, in verse 7, he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure meaning the glory of the gospel shining in the face of Christ. He says, I'm a clay pot. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul is never going to be the explanation for his spiritual success. In fact, in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. His life was just a constant exposure to death, to hostility, to enemies. It was a crushing thing, but it didn't didn't put out the light. It didn't daunt his spirit. And that's why he says the things he says. I'm all the way committed to death if need be. So let death work in us if life can work in you. So there is an immense humility in that recognition that you are disposable, that you are dispensable, that you need to look at yourself with a sense of unworthiness. In chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, you might want to look at that. Paul, at the beginning of the chapter, talks about his trip to heaven and all the visions and all the revelations that he had. But he comes down into verse 7, and we read this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. This is the Apostle Paul, who had the most preeminent credentials of anybody in the New Testament except our Lord himself. And in his fallenness and in his recognition of his own sinfulness, he knew that he was tempted to be proud because of his spiritual success and spiritual accomplishments. And perhaps there were those expressions of pride because the Lord has to do something to humble him. And it says in verse 7 that because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Thorn, not like on a rose bush, but it really means a, a point of a spear. The, the Lord literally took a spear and ran it through his otherwise proud flesh. What was that? What was that tortured instrument? What was that torment driven into his flesh? He says, a messenger of Satan to torment me. What is a messenger of Satan? Well, that word is used, messenger is used many, many, many times in the New Testament. It always means a person. It doesn't mean malaria or eye disease or things like that. Some people have said it's a person. It's a, it's a person, and in this case, it could be a human person because angelos is used, at least in Revelation, to refer to a human person. But better to understand, it's the word angelos. So what is a satanic angelos? That's a demon. 
And I think that he's talking about the demon who was leading the opposition to the church at Corinth and tearing up his work there. Paul was heart sick about the fact that he had left after immense effort there and false teachers had come possessed by demons to destroy his ministry. They were saying terrible things about him. They were brutal and merciless. They said he was in it for favors from women and to make money and he lied about his credentials. They made up everything possible. And this was damaging to the church that he loved so much. This was his deepest pain because in chapter 11 he says, I can take the physical pain. What's hard for me is the care of the churches because who's weak and I don't feel the pain? Who sins and I don't feel the agony? So what was going on in the church was a torturous experience for him. He uses the term torment. Why would the Lord allow a demon-possessed false teacher to do damage to a church to humble Paul. That is a stunning reality. Unless you think it's some kind of isolated reality. Remember that Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, Satan desires to have you that he may sift you like wheat. And he's going to do that. I'm giving him permission to do that. And when it's over and you're converted, you'll be able to strengthen the brethren. There are times when the Lord lets Satan loose on one of his own to humble him. There are times when God commands demonic forces, because they are under his command, to be the instrument of the humbling of a preacher like Paul. That's how important humility is. That's how important humility is. I say this to ministers all the time. Embrace your suffering. Embrace your disappointments. Embrace your failures. Because in those embraces, you're going to find your greatest spiritual growth and usefulness. So Paul prays in verse 8 three times for the Lord to get that demon-possessed influence out of the church at Corinth. And the Lord says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. This is the divine principle that I want you to notice. Now, I'll give you sufficient grace to endure this. And it'll produce in you distrust and weakness that'll make you dependent on me. There are so many people who are too strong to be useful. So few who are weak enough to be useful. Paul was humble. And where he wasn't humble, he was humbled in very epic fashion. But he learned a lesson. Verse 9, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So that's where Christian life begins, with your recognition of your weakness, your weakness. There's far too much fake preaching these days that tries to elevate people, telling them that because they're a child of God, they should think of themselves in some elevated fashion. But that is absolutely the opposite of what the Scripture would say. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul says, 
I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man. This is the kind of humility that is honest. And it's not what the world exalts or elevates, but it is the foundation for all Christian living. Go back to Matthew 5 for a moment. In Matthew 5, our Lord starts the Sermon on the Mount, and He's inviting people to His kingdom. And notice the nature of those who will be received. Verse 3, Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Intuitively, you might say, blessed are the rich in spirit, blessed are the super spiritual, blessed are the highly educated, you know, whatever. But it's the opposite. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It means spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the people who have nothing to offer. That's how you come to the kingdom, and with an empty hand. In fact, not only are you bankrupt in your spirit, but verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. They're the ones that are going to be comforted. They're mourning over their insufficiency and unworthiness. And then in verse 5, they're the gentle or they're the meek who don't assert themselves. They're the ones that inherit the earth. And then they are described as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which means they know they don't have it, but they're the ones satisfied. They're they're the merciful who will receive mercy. They're the pure in heart who will see God. They're the peacemakers, not the troublemakers. They're the ones in verse 10 who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's nothing new for God's people to be vilified, mistreated, and persecuted. What it does is it just humbles the heart. And Paul is trying to get us to the place where we don't look on our own things, but we look on the things of others, where we humble ourselves. Again, this is the foundational attitude in the Christian life. First Peter 5, 5, be clothed with humility. It's not just an item of clothing, it's the robe. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, we're talking about humility. What are we talking about? Well, I think there are three things that would simply help you to see what humility essentially perceives. Number one, self-awareness. Self-awareness. A humble person is aware of his own limitations, his own boundaries, his own competencies and incompetencies, his own weaknesses, his own sins. Self-awareness. You start by being honest about yourself, and you hear Paul say, I'm the chief of sinners. Or you hear him say, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man. Paul is declaring his unworthiness. So the, the, the worthy walk is a walk of one who is convinced he is unworthy. Honesty about yourself. Because as we said, the default position for fallen sinners is to overestimate themselves and Pride is the dominating default sin. Occasionally, I like to read uh, psychologist Jordan Peterson. 
because I think he's got some amazing practical insights. And he loves to confront university students who uh, tell him they want to change the world. When he, when he asks them what they would like to do, they might say end global warming. Um, they might say eliminate poverty, eliminate sexual traffic, eliminate drugs, um, eliminate crime. They've got these grandiose ideologies. They want to have a large impact on society. They want to fix the world. And I love how he responds to that. He says, well, um, why don't you start by fixing your own life? That's a big enough challenge, and you may find that you'll never be able to do it in your whole life. But it's a good place to start. Before you fix the world, fix what's wrong with you. That's a big challenge. I mean, it comes down occasionally to something like this. You're going to change the world, but you can't even stay on a diet? Really? Maybe you could start by cleaning your room. And then when you get yourself fixed, fix your family. You want a job? Forget the world. Just try to fix your family. Maybe you ought to start there. It's bizarre for people to think they can leave their own weaknesses and inabilities where they are and somehow with all of that weakness never dealt with, they can make a change in the entire world. You've got to start by being honest about your weakness because that throws you at the mercy of the Lord, doesn't it? That's why you come with a beatitude attitude. That's, that's why you live the Christian life with all humility. Humility says, I'm, I'm not worthy, I'm not capable, I'm not able, I understand that. And so whatever suffering the Lord brings into my life, I want to embrace that suffering. Whatever He's doing to refine me and break my confidence in myself, I want to embrace that because it's only when I am weak that I am strong. When I get out of the way and trust Him, then there's real strength. So it starts with an honest self-awareness. And then secondly, I would say it's a Christ-awareness. When, if, if, when you're overestimating your significance, your importance, your value, your competencies, you probably have been looking to compare yourself with someone less than you. Not likely Christ. But as you gaze at the glory of Christ... And as you see Him for who He is, you get smaller and smaller. John the Baptist said, He must increase and I must decrease. And then it's also a view of God. Like Isaiah 6. Isaiah, who's the prophet, sees God and having seen God, he puts a curse on himself and says he's a man with a dirty mouth and pronounces judgment on himself. So humility comes from an honest evaluation of yourself and a true vision of Christ and a true vision of God. And the purer your vision of yourself and your Lord and God, the more useful you become. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Jeremiah wrote this, 
Thus says Yahweh, let not a man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. That's what we're after here. So this is humility. But we talked about that last time, so let's go on to the next word. And the next word will will be enough to occupy us for a few more minutes. Gentleness. You might say, well, I get it. But you probably don't. Now listen, this is foundation, right? We've had three chapters of doctrine. Credible lavish layout of doctrine. And now we're supposed to walk worthy. We're supposed to match up our living with our doctrine. And he gives us these very simple words in all humility and gentleness. So we better know what they mean. What is gentleness? Or some translations translate it meekness. Proutes in Greek. It means mild or gentle. So Meekness works. Gentleness works. It's uh, gentle-hearted. On the negative side, no spirit of revenge, no spirit of retaliation, no vindictiveness, no bitterness, no hostile anger, no angry assertions. It's gentleness. And sometimes the word was used to describe a soothing medicine in ancient times. Other times it was used to describe a gentle breeze. And uh, other times it was used to describe a young colt that had been broken, where it was unruly, it now became tame, gentle, and its power could be channeled in a productive way. Secular Greek uses it of people who are mild or friendly or gentle or pleasant as opposed to rough, harsh, hard, violent, angry. It's a godly virtue. It's a godly virtue. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. We saw it there in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle or the meek. We see it in Galatians 5, 23, where it appears as part of the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. We see it in 1 Timothy 6, 11, as a virtue of a man of God who is marked by his gentleness. And again, there might be people who think, well, this is weakness. How can you be a strong leader, and be gentle. You can if you understand this term. And I think one of the best ways to understand it is to see it defined as power under control. It's doesn't, it doesn't refer to impotence or lack of power or lack of courage. And it is a byproduct of humility. If you're a humble person, you may have immense power. You may have immense capabilities. You may have immense competencies. You, you may be a force. But if you are humble, all of a sudden you're transformed into someone who's gentle. Because this is a product of self-humiliation. This is a product of self-emptying. This is the product of a broken will. Again, it doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean impotent. It doesn't make, mean cowardly. 
What it means is that your powers, which are formidable in Christ, are under the control of the will of God and the Holy Spirit. Proverbs says in Proverbs 25:28, like a city that is broken into and without a wall is a man without restraint over his spirit. On the other hand, Proverbs 16:32 says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. Gentleness means you have self-control. There is a meekness. There is a gentleness. And let me see if I can't define it in some specific ways by giving you some specific illustrations. The best one. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty nine, Come to me and learn of me, for I am what? Meek and lowly. I am gentle and lowly. So if you're looking for an illustration of what gentleness and lowliness looks like, look no further than Jesus. Was He weak? Was He cowardly? Was He short on convictions? No. But the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.1 that we need to follow the meekness of Christ, the meekness, the gentleness of Christ. How is it that we can even look at Jesus in that way? After all, he blasted the temple system twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. He condemned the hypocrites, the leaders of Israel. He unleashed judgment on their heads. There's no cowardly Christ. That is inconceivable. He stood fearlessly before a crowd that wanted to stone him and disappeared. And then he took whips to clean out the temple when his father's house had been defiled. Yet the Bible says he was meek. He's the model of meekness, total selflessness. How, how is this possible to be both meek and such a force against evil? And the answer is this, that Jesus never wielded his power to defend himself. He never wielded his power to defend himself. He wielded his power to defend his father, his father's reputation, and his father's house. You have taken my father's house, which is a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. When you think about the incarnation of Christ, I know you understand that he became a man, tr became truly man. You see much of the human part of it in his living, of course. But I think we tend to overlook the unique characteristic of, of gentleness that is on the one hand fiercely defensive of God and not of oneself. For him, his father mattered. His father mattered. For him, Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open what? His mouth. 
He didn't open his mouth. He was like a sheep, dumb before its shearers. He had power, but he never used it for himself. You don't find that. He was always humbling himself, taking on the burdens, taking the hostility, the hatred, and eager and fiercely loyal to his Father. And he is our model of what meekness looks like. You defend God, you defend His kingdom, you defend His truth, you don't defend yourself. That, that's the power that's under control. You know, as a, as a person who knows the Word of God, you've got a lot of power. You can wield your knowledge of Scripture with some serious force, so can I. You can use the sword of the Spirit to cut and slice and dice, and that's what it does. And you can use it to defend yourself. And you can become a cutting, domineering, overbearing, self-defensive person. And if it's all about you, then you haven't understood the basics of the Christian life. Meekness. I will rise to the battle to defend the Lord to defend Christ, to defend the Holy Spirit, to defend the Scripture. I don't wield powers to defend myself against someone who accuses me falsely, persecutes me. Meekness is that power under control used only at the right time and the right occasion for the right length at the right cause. An illustration of it back in 1 Samuel 24. Saul is hunting David. He's got a few thousand men. He's trying to get to David so he can eliminate him because he's a threat to his throne. They're down by En Gedi, which is the spring of goats down by the Dead Sea. And David and his men are in a cave, and Saul and his men come by, and it says in 1 Samuel 24 that Saul came in the cave to relieve himself, the very cave where David and his men were hiding. The men immediately thought, this is, this is it. With a stroke of a blade, Saul is dead and David is free from his would-be murderer. David could have killed Saul there, taken the throne that really belonged to him. And they urged David to do it, but he wouldn't do it. He just cut off a piece of Saul's robe and kept that piece. He had the power to take a life. He had maybe the right to take a life because he was God's choice king. But that power was under control. And the controlling element was the will of God. The will of God. He followed Saul out of the cave, showed him the peace, and told him, I wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. With all the power that a believer has, the power of the truth and the power of the Spirit, we don't want to wield it as if it's ours for the defense of ourselves. Remember what Paul said. Power is perfected in what? In weakness. So I would rather have persecutions and suffering. You don't want to defend yourself because when you're in difficult times, that's when God does His best work in shaping you. 
Second Samuel 16, David's son Absalom took over the kingdom and forced his father to flee into the wilderness. One of Saul's men, Shimei, cursed David. And so David's people said, let me take his head off. And David said, let him alone. He had the power. He had the opportunity. But he wouldn't take vengeance because I read in Romans, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Saul could have and would have killed David if the tables had been turned. But David wouldn't take Saul. He had the power, but it was under control. And it was never used for him. And Jesus had the power. He said this, If I asked my Father, He would send 12 legions of angels to deliver me and you couldn't do anything. But He didn't. Because in the will of God, suffering was the divine purpose. In uh, Numbers 12, Verse 3, it says about Moses, The man Moses was very meek above all the men who were on the face of the earth. Do you think of Moses as meek, gentle, more so than anybody on the earth? He was fearless. He was bold. He was courageous. He was powerful. He was strong. He was confrontive. He stood toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. came down from the mountain, smashed the tablets of stone in fury over idolatry and caused a slaughter of the idolaters right in the camp of Israel. Moses was a force for the defense of God. But on his own, you remember in Exodus 3, he says, you don't want me, I, 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 I stutter. But what he did have was the rod of God. So this is a virtue that goes right along with humility. Whereas believers, we're not into defending ourselves because if we are all busy defending ourselves, there can't be unity because we don't look on the things of others. We're too absorbed in our own issues. Follow the pattern of Christ. Do you experience that kind of control? Is your anger controlled? Is your self-defense common? Or do you save your anger for holy things, righteous indignation? Are you honored only when God is dishonored, His Word is dishonored? Do you always seek to make peace No trouble, no gossip, just forgiveness, restoration. Do you respond to the Word humbly, meekly? Do you receive intrusion and instruction and love the people who disagree with you? This is power under control. And the final question is, do you rise to the defense of your Savior and your God and His truth? Because that's when you should express that power.
John Bunyan put it simply. He said, He that is already down need fear no fall. A meek person is not proud of himself, nothing of which to boast, demands nothing, is not self-protective, self-defensive, self-pitying. It is to be finished with yourself altogether. And that's the twin of humility. Sums it up when you read how our Lord responded to his mistreatment, first Peter two twenty one. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now look, Christ died as a substitution, but he also died as an example. And what is what does that mean? Follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So he didn't deserve the mistreatment that he got. But while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus set the example. You don't retaliate. You suffer righteously and you leave the vengeance to God. This is the kind of humility and gentleness that leads to true unity in the church. Never think you should get your way. You should always want to get God's way. Father, we thank You for Your truth and Your Word. And even though this is a simple concept on the one hand, it's, it's elusive because we still have the raging of remaining sin within us so we ask that you would grant us the humility and gentleness that is the fruit of the Spirit. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. And this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just a holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. Beautiful, beautiful, you never change.
God of love? This is Ken Ham, author of a new commentary and devotional on Genesis, Creation to Babel. Last year, a study found over half of Americans believed in evolution, and that's not surprising. They've been indoctrinated into believing that through millions of years of death, disease, and suffering, man evolved. Now, when you talk about a God of love, how do such people react? Many will say, how can there be a loving God? Look at this world of death and suffering. You see, they're looking at a groaning world because of sin. But because they've been indoctrinated not to believe in sin, they don't understand how to reconcile a God of love with this hurting world. But when they know that the Bible's history is true, that our sin caused death, they understand God's truly a God of love. Find more answers when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You'll discover more about the truth of God's Word and how to share the gospel with others at AnswersRadio.com. 
We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, gonna miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes. God. This is Ken Ham with a passion for sharing God's Word with the world. Most people, including many Christians, have been indoctrinated to believe the fossil record took millions of years to be laid down. But when Christians believe this idea, they've accepted that there were millions of years of death and suffering before God made the first man. And if that's true, then God used evolution to create. Now this places the blame for death and suffering on God. But Genesis makes it plain that death entered the world because of Adam's sin. It's man's fault, not God's. 
Death was a judgment because of sin. It's an enemy. And someday, God will destroy death forever. Instead of accepting man's ideas about the past, we need to trust God's word. Find out more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript when you visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you surely go gonna die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero when his name is Jesus. The Bible's History 
wrong? This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. If people believe in billions of years of history, then they must also accept that millions of years of death, disease and suffering led up to man's existence. You see, the fossil record reveals death and diseases like cancer. Christians who accept millions of years must believe in a long history of animal and human death before sin. But the Bible makes it clear that death's an intruder into God's once very good creation. Really, when Christians accept millions of years of death before man, then they're telling the world the Bible's history is wrong. But the God-breathed word is true and can be trusted from the very first verse. Discover more answers from God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, He made us all, yo. Yeah, God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they're God, they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. And the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation, chapter number 7. The church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go.
of God display. God made me and you. For all the value, all are lost. All is greatly for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost. God made me and you. Different colors and different shades. All fearfully and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God display. God made me and you. For all of value, all are lost. All is greatly for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross. Violence and evolution? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Apologetics and Evangelistic Ministry of Answers in Genesis. We're all shocked by violence in many American cities. Does evolution have anything to do with this? Well, the public school system has indoctrinated generations of young people into believing there's no God. We're just highly evolved animals who evolved over millions of years. And there's no moral absolutes. And in this worldview, where we decide right and wrong for ourselves, then violence is okay if I think it's okay. And the more society thinks this way, we'll see many people acting out the consequences of what they've been taught. But there is a God. When not just animals. There are moral absolutes that come from God because He created us and therefore He determines what's right and wrong. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and find resources to equip and encourage you in your faith at AnswersRadio.com.
forgiven now we can pray to our Father in heaven above. We can come to our God at any time of the day and He'll receive us so great His love. He wants us to talk to Him with a sincere heart and rejoice when we're really glad. And when it seems like things are falling apart, we can pray when we're feeling sad. culture wars called Divided Nation. I call evolution the religion of death. You see, a religion can be defined as a system of belief held to with ardor and faith, and that's accurate for evolution. It's man's attempt to explain everything apart from God. And in this religion, the death of billions and billions of creatures over billions of years finally led to man. You can see why I call it a religion of death. But Genesis gives us the true history. Death is a consequence of our sin. But Jesus, the God-man, came and paid the penalty of our sin for us when he died on the cross and then rose again. Everyone who repents and trusts in him alone for salvation receives eternal life with Christ. God's word can be trusted from the very first verse. Get answers to encourage you in your faith at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com.
Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 Why do the nations rage, and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling, the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. 
The Freemasons are a secret society, though they prefer to be known as the largest fraternity in the world. A local gathering is called a Masonic Lodge. With secret handshakes and rituals and high-profile members, the Masons have been the subject of many conspiracy theories. Freemasonry began as a guild of stonemasons and somehow went from stonecutters to strange cult. Their emblem is a compass and square, often with a G in the middle, said to stand for geometry or God. But most likely it's for the great architect of the universe, their universalist name for God. To be a mason, one must believe in a supreme being, and some lodges require belief in the Christian God. But this is not a Christian fraternity. Masons want members to ignore the exclusivity of Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can go to heaven by good works. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we are saved by grace through faith and not our works. The Masons do not regard the Bible as the only inerrant word of God. It's just one of several volumes of sacred text, a moral guidebook equal to the Quran or Rig Veda. Masons do not regard man as sinful, just imperfect, able to improve himself through acts of charity and civic duty. Anyone is capable of achieving moral perfection. All of this is Antichrist. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. And 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. A Christian cannot pledge with the Freemasons when we understand the text. Redeeming Love is a historical romance by Francine Rivers, published in 91. Rivers says that when she became a Christian, she began to adapt true Bible stories into fictional romance. Redeeming Love is a retelling of Hosea set in the American Old West. In the Bible, God told Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he married a harlot named Gomer, who represented Israel's unfaithfulness. Hosea prophesied of the judgment of God, who is faithful to his promise, though his people were not faithful to him. The only similarities Redeeming Love has to the Bible story are that the main character's last name is Hosea, and he marries a prostitute. Gomer is replaced by Angel, a victim of sex abuse her whole life. Gomer and Israel were not victims. Angel catches the eye of Michael Hosea, who hears God tell him to marry her. After getting married, Angel runs away and goes back to prostitution, but Michael forgives her, and Angel learns true love. The story is now a movie, pitched as a Christian film, though it contains nudity and lengthy sex scenes. Do not be entertained by sin Christ gave his life to redeem you from. The Bible says, flee from sexual immorality. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, even in what you set before your eyes. Redeeming love is a perversion of scripture and of people. Call out to the Lord, Psalm 44:26. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love when we understand the text. Like you said, that's when we understand the text, also known as WWUTT on YouTube and their website, www.utt.com. So check those out and you can see more stuff like that. And thanks for listening to Trippy Tall Radio. What I do now is I'm going to play This is My Queen's. Define love according to the Bible. Is it a feeling, an act, a choice, 
definition of love, I think, is caring for others. The description of love is these things we read in 1 Corinthians 13 and demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. But then you say, is love a choice? And there I say, yes, love is a choice. Caring for others doesn't always mean having intense emotional feelings towards others. Feelings aren't itself love. The way that we sometimes confuse love in our culture is we relate love to desire to have, right? I love hamburgers. But that's not even the kind of love. We're not talking about that's not patient, kind. That's not any of those things. That love is just desire to have. So that's why love is absolutely a choice. I mean, someone frustrates you and you're upset with them and you decide, I'm just going to be kind and gracious to them. That was love. That was love. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'd like to share with you a couple of emails. One is a really just encouraging story of a man who's not doing open-air preaching, but he's doing some evangelism in an unlikely place. I want to save that for the end, but I want to dive into another email. And the reason that I'm bringing this up on a day that isn't Friday is because this is so constant. And I have a suspicion that people who experience this probably hide in the shadows, probably don't express this often to people because I suspect they believe this would make them a weird Christian, or maybe not even a Christian at all. I'm talking about intrusive thoughts. I'm talking about things that come zinging into your brain at inappropriate times, which is every time. You're praying, stupid thought. You're reading your Bible. Boom, in comes the intrusive thought that is not godly, that is anti-God. And I received yet another one of those. This is, this, is, this is constant, and so I'll use this one to bring up the many of what I think is a common malady, intrusive thoughts. I've been struggling with intrusive thoughts. When I'm reading the Word, which is nearly every day, listening to sermons, praying, going to Bible studies, I keep getting assaulted with thoughts of, you don't even believe this. How do you know you're really reading Jesus' words? How do you know the Bible is really God's word? Those types of thoughts, woofda, those are, those are straight from the pit, aren't they? I have done a lot of research into apologetics to try and calm myself down and pray that the thoughts would dissipate and be done away with. But I've been at it for months, perhaps a year now, and I still have them. It's discouraging me. Your strange if you experience what this person experiences. I've seen it too much. In fact, one of our episodes of Transformed, which will be available April 1st, we'll be sharing some of that with you here on Wretched Radio. It is biblical counseling in action, and one of the fellows who was counseled has OCD. And in, in he, it's a different form of intrusive thoughts, but it is all underneath that umbrella. of I've got stuff going through my brain telling me things that aren't true. Check the door again, check the door again, check the door again, check the door. What is that? That's a lie? What is the, the intrusive thought that says, are you sure you're reading Jesus' words? How do you know the Bible is actually God's word? You don't even believe that. What are those, what are those three sentiments? Lie, lie, and lie. That should help us understand what to do with these intrusive thoughts. What, what counters a lie? What exposes a lie? What defeats a lie? The truth. So what does the one who is struggling with this need to do? Because remember, we don't let go and let God. 
Do we pray to God to ask him to remove this from us? Perfectly acceptable prayer. But we should also ask him for strength and a desire to overcome this relying on him. That's the synergistic sanctification process. That is the prayer that we should be asking God. Lord, I don't want to do this. If you, if you choose to remove it from me, I'd be so grateful. If not, help me. Give me strength. I'm going to war, and this battle could rage for years, potentially the rest of my life. Lord, give me perseverance in this. Give me strength to overcome this. Then you need to do stuff. And what you need to do to get the lies out of your brain is tell them truth. What is the truth? So there you are. You're praying. You don't even believe this. Hold on. That's just not true. I do believe this. I'm not going to listen to that. Lord, please forgive me for my intrusive thought. Back to whatever you were doing. Get back to reading the Bible. You hear the voice that says, is this really the word of God? You know what, Lord? I know this is your word. Your word is truth. And I'm staking my life on it. Thank you. Please continue to convince me that this is indeed inspired by you. And then you get back to reading the Bible. You got to go to war with the thoughts. And this ain't easy. I realize this maybe sounds almost trite, but it's, well, first of all, it's a whole lot better than a secular response. I, I, I did some Googling to see what the secularists would tell you to, what to do with intrusive thoughts. Oh, they've got all kinds of helpful hints and tips. You can put a rubber bander on your wrist and snap it. Kind of, oh, okay, that's, that's a stupid thought. Really? That's the best we can do? How's about defeating the lie with truth, which will just increase your certainty of the truth? And so there you are. You're walking along. You're in church. You're singing on Sunday morning something glorious and transcendent about God, which is what we should be singing about, more about you and him than me and I. And all of a sudden, Something comes in. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about some people will have an intrusive thought of a different nature. Typically, they might come up with some sort of nasty thought, sexual, murderous thought. That's different. We're, we can deal with those separately really the same way, but we're focusing on the intrusive thoughts that tell you things that are contrary to what God would say to you and what the Bible says about you. Stop them. Counter them with truth. And if that isn't enough, then grab your Bible and find the verses that talk about it. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. And then concentrate on that. Think about that. Stew in that. Meditate on that. Didn't do the trick? Run to Psalm 119, read about God's Word, being like honey. It's a delight, it's a joy, and then pray through it. Lord, help me to feel that way always about your Word. Kick out the intrusive thoughts. Exchange lies for truth. Is it going to be easy? No. Yes. But God's implement of war, his weapons, they're not carnal. They're not rubber bands. He uses his word, 
So you are going to have to use his word, which is truth, to counter the lies that keep popping into your head. And you need to know if that happens to you, you're really not all that weird, really. Now, you might be weird, but not in this regard. This is a common issue. And honestly, it shouldn't be something that anybody's ashamed about. Our brains are broken. What do we expect? We all get stupid thoughts in one form or another, don't we? Bad ideas, bad comments. Oh, why would I do? Why would I say that? Why would I think that? Why am I looking at that woman and pondering that? What am I doing here? We all suffer from different forms of broken brainness. If yours is intrusive thoughts, go to war, but don't let it make you feel like a second-class Christian. Email number two, dear Mister Friel. Now, 
I've been out here for about two weeks homeless. Uh, when we flew in from Texas, uh, we had some money and staying in hotels and working little jobs here and there. But like these past two weeks, especially yesterday, you know, when my girl and I just split ways, um, hey, I was like, man, I, I need somebody here. I feel alone. Sometimes situations in life can be kind of a wake-up call to us. Huh? Most definitely. You know, it's so kind of God to allow difficult circumstances in our lives as a wake-up call to us as people. You ask any man whose brokenness brought him to the foot of the cross or into a deeper and richer time of fellowship with God, and he'll tell you that it was all worth it. Sometimes the way to healing comes through the way of brokenness. And it's amazing when the Lord allows those things in our lives or allows us to be ready to come into contact with people who have been ripened by difficult circumstances so we can be salt and light to them and reach them with the gospel. You know, there's been a saying that I've heard before that, that talks about how pain can be God's megaphone to a world that's hard of hearing. Sure. It's, it's a wake-up call, you know, that makes us step back and say, wow. You know, even emotions, right? Like, you know, I, I step back sometimes and I think, man, you see someone cry. What in the world is, is this liquid that's coming out of your eye, that's going down your face, that somehow gives you this sense of relief? You know, what's, what's a feeling of love? Like when you meet a woman and your heart starts rapidly beating, you know, or you, you experience a, a feeling of, of uh, urgency when in a scenario like I shared, like you said, you guys saw a man beating a woman, something in you that provokes you that this is wrong, you know, makes you step back and say, man, I'm not some random chance accident. I've been created by God. I, I have been designed by a, a, a God that is amazing beyond description. And then comes the question, well, okay, if God made me, do I have a relationship with him? Am I right with him? Now, well, I can tell you this. I can answer that for myself. Um, I haven't been right with God for a long time, you know. Um, that's just my my fault, you know. I just kind of lost lost sight of what what's real, what's what's supposed to be in my life. It's amazing to hear you acknowledge that because most people I run into it's the opposite problem. Oh, I'm fine with God. Me and God have this personal thing going on. For someone to step back like you and say, I'm not right with God. I've, I've been disconnected from God. I need to be made right with God. The next question that arises is, how do we do that then? You know, as hard as our situations in life get, it doesn't change the fact that we have sinned against God. And we're in a place where if we're not right with God, the Bible talks about us being enemies of God. I mean, would you say when you look in your life, you could see the reality of sin, that you've rebelled and sinned against God? For sure, every day. You know, we need to be really careful that we don't allow someone's hardship to deter us from sharing with them the fact that they sinned against the Holy God and that they are in need of repenting of that sin and placing their faith in Christ. I know what it's like naturally in that you're talking to someone who's in pain or they've gone through intense suffering and you feel like, oh man, I don't want to add to that. But when you think about it, in light of what their real predicament is in terms of spending an eternity in hell, the most loving thing we can do is to be honest with them. Of course, tenderly and gently. You know, when a patient comes to see their doctor, and they begin that visit by telling their doctor about all the different hardships that they've been going through, that doctor can't pause the need to tell them the fact that he just discovered that they have cancer. It's through telling them that that he can then give them the life-saving treatment that they so desperately need. It sounds to me, man, like, um, like God has, has been 
pounding you, as it's been said, uh, with his spirit to bring you to a place of brokenness, to open your eyes and recognize, I need to be made right with him. And the answer to that question I posed to you a little bit ago is, man, our sin has separated us from him, and Christ is the solution to that because he went to that cross. He bore the sins of sinners like you and me, died, shed his blood to wash those sins away, rose again three days later, and, man, the way to be made right with him is through repentance and faith. And that's, that means recognizing your sin, acknowledging it, changing your heart and mind and perspective about it, and then turning from it and surrendering your life to a God who can transform you. Mm-hmm. And do you see how he orchestrated this? Yeah. you see how he, by his divine grace, man, made this happen? You've been thinking about God. You've been thinking about getting your life right with him. And he orchestrated this divine appointment to give you the fullness of the truth. The answer isn't in cleaning ourselves up. The answer isn't in trying to make ourselves right. It's in coming to him and surrendering it and saying, Lord, I'm a lost sinner. I've sinned against you. I deserve your wrath and judgment in hell. You love me enough to go to that cross and and give your life and rise again to set me free. And then he can do that for you. My hope is that today you will fully lay it all down and receive what he's done. It's a free gift. You can't earn it or work for it. He's done it. And that you let the Lord begin to work in your heart, build you up, restore you, change you, transform you. And then you're going to live for him with the true purpose that he's intended. For sure. I wasn't really too sure about when you came up and talked to me and said, hey, i got a YouTube channel. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your channel's about. But um, I did see your uh, subway card that you offered me, right? And I'm pretty hungry. You know, I got a few bucks in my pocket. But... Yeah, I'm pretty hungry right now, and I can sure use that card. But, hey, you know what? Today was um, was an eye-opener, really, because I didn't know what this was about, and now I do know. Oh, bro, here you go, man. Uh, let me give you a couple more Subway cards. You sure? Absolutely. Yeah, God bless you, man. Thank yeah. you, bro. Are you sure, man? Absolutely. Man, you got to do that, man. It's a, it's a joy. Hey, man, thank you, brother. Thank you, man. Absolutely, man. God's going to get you through this, bro. Just surrender yourself to him. Maybe, absolutely. God bless you, bro. Let me pray for you, man. Yeah, please. Man, I'm I'm still uh, trying to get over the emotions with that one. You know, um, it's just amazing uh, when the Lord orchestrates what I've called for years now divine convergence. Yeah. You know, and you can see by his reaction that there's been a lot going on inside of him. Right. And there's been a lot going on circumstantially in his life, too. But right. we pray and we say, Lord, lead us to who you want us to talk to, you know. And and I, I looked at him, I, I and I don't know what what it was, but I just I felt drawn to, you know, to talk to him. And, and when you see an outcome like that, you just step back and say, Lord, well, you know, what a joy to be uh, a servant in your hands. But what can you compare to being used by God spiritually in the life of a person to bring them the truth of the gospel. Nothing compares to it. Don't forget to subscribe and click on the notification bell and make sure you don't miss the Living Waters podcast. The Evidence Study Bible will give you everything you've ever wanted to know about subjects such as the theory of evolution as well as valuable information about cults and different religions, atheism, and biblical archaeology. It also contains hundreds of quality quotes fascinating articles, amazing scientific facts in the Bible, and so much more.
It even includes answers to 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith. The Evidence Study Bible will thoroughly enrich your trust in God and in His precious Word. Get yours at livingwaters.com. That was from Living Waters of their YouTube channel. Check them out, Living Waters, L-I-V-I-N-G, Waters, W-A-T-E-R-S, and also livingwaters.com, their website, livingwaters.com, and see more, more things like that on YouTube. They often go out, they call open air preaching, and a lot of times it's in a a hanging beach, so, and I think before they did go to three of college, not sure if they, they'll go down. So, uh, thanks for listening, and that's all I got for Truth Retorial. I'm going to go out with Yancy and friends, and the VIVI. Bye for now.